We study billionaires, and this is episode 70 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right. How's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And we have a guest on the show that a lot of people have been requesting by name on our forum and on Twitter. And they're saying, you've got to get this guy on the show. And it is Mr. Meb Faber. And Meb is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Cambria Investment Management. And uh, Meb's written a couple different books. And he also manages all the ETFs and separate accounts and private investment funds out at Cambria. But Meb has written three different books. He's written Shareholders Yield, The Ivy Portfolio, and Global Value. And I can tell you how I came in contact with Meb. And Meb's been on Barron's, New York Times, New Yorker, all these different really high profile national news networks or media networks. And I came in contact with Meb the first time, not through like Barron's or anything, but I was actually watching YouTube. And he was giving this speech about value investing and more specifically, global value investing. And I'm listening to this speech and I said, this guy gets it. This guy really understands what he's talking about. And ever since that, I've been following you kind of closely, Meb, and I've been watching some of your blog articles that you write and you're just, you're a wealth of information. And what I really like is you share that with your community. You put it out there for a lot of people to comment on and, and you're just sharing your knowledge. And that's the thing that we really appreciate. And we're so excited to bring you on the show. So I just want to personally welcome you. And I know Stig wants to welcome you as well to the Investors Podcast. And we're just thrilled to have you here. Great to be here. It's a pleasure. So Meb, we watched this video of you giving this speech at Google and you were talking about value investing. And I was really impressed with this. And I want you to really describe in generic terms, just so our audience can kind of really understand your approach of international value investing approach. Okay. Well, value investing is nothing new. You know, it's been around for probably hundreds of years, but in the, in the modern terms, you know, at least a hundred years, Ben Graham is often seen as the father of security analysis, at least in the U.S. pertaining to stocks. And so he wrote a couple books many of your listeners will be familiar with and was also a professor and a mentor of Warren Buffett. But one of the things he used to do is, is attempt to value stocks and securities. And one of the ways he did it was he looked at earnings and would often average those earnings over longer periods, like five to seven years be able to get a fundamental anchor from which to value a security. And the benefit of the longer term perspective is that it had investors um, or the, the ability to look at the security through both recessions as well as expansions and, and be able to come up with a fundamental value and hopefully purchase that security at a discount. Well, you know, many, many people have practiced that investment methodology over the years. It's been very successful, both in academia as well as practitioners. And a very famous Another professor, 80 years later, 70 years later, Robert Schiller, a recent Nobel laureate professor at Yale, published a white paper and then some books, basically applying the same logic to the stock market as a whole and said, can we average out a stream of earnings? In his case, he did 10 years, probably just because a nice round number, adjusting for inflation so that you can compare apples to apples 
and called it the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, what a lot of people call the Schiller or 10-year PE ratio or the CAPE ratio now. And what he found is that, you know, it's not rocket science, valuation works. And when you buy a market as a whole and, you know, look out 10 years, the less you pay for something, so the cheaper the CAPE ratio, the higher your future returns are. And the more you pay for something, the lower your future returns are. And so the average over time in the U.S. is around 16, 17 when you're, but it's hit a low as low as five and a high as high as 45 in the late 90s bubble. And just for visual, we're right around probably 24 now after this recent correction. But what we wanted to do is we said, look, this works great in the U.S., why not apply it to all the markets in the world? And so we were the first, to my knowledge, to go out and build this for 45 developed and emerging countries. There's another of other companies that do it, that track it now, such as Research Affiliates and Star Capital, where you can get free updates of the CAPE ratio. But it turns out it works just the same way in foreign markets as it does in the US, that you want to buy cheap markets and uh, avoid the, the expensive. Yeah, and uh, Meb, it's funny you should mention Star Capital because I just pull up some numbers from the site and I'll be sure to link to them in the show notes. And if we rank them just solely based to the CAPE ratio, we can see that Russia appears to be the most attractive choice. Um, the CAPE ratio is 4.6, which is really, really low. You compare that to, to the US, which is 24, and Denmark being the highest in the world with 40. So... I'm just thinking, does that mean like everything else equal? We can just go in and and buy, say, Russia, perhaps a few more short Denmark and US, perhaps? Well, there's good and bad news. You know, it's boring to say, but the US is expensive, but it's not a bubble. It's not horrifically expensive. And being a quant, all that it means is the future expected returns are expected to be lower than normal. And, you know, that doesn't make for great TV and probably doesn't make for great podcasts either. But it's the reality. And there's a future spectrum of returns. And if you're a value investor or an investor in general, you know that the future is not perfect. And so despite the fact you have a high valuation, U.S. stocks could easily go up 40% next year. And then that's happened in the past. But it does improve your odds and it changes the probabilities in the future. So if you buy a market that's expensive, the chances are higher that you're going to have a big fat loss or drawdown going forward. And when the markets are really cheap, you have sort of that margin of safety. There's so many caveats to this, of course. You know, we often talk about it, that it's similar to a poker player or blackjack player who's sitting at a table and, you know, may do something really dumb, like hit on an 18 versus when the dealer has a six. You pull your hair out and say, why would anyone ever do that? And of course, there's the one idiot that does that at some point and gets a three and gets 21. So it's not impossible for markets to go up when they're expensive. So that's the bad news. The U.S. is expensive. The good news is most of the rest of the world is reasonably priced too cheap. So the foreign developed index is around, I think, 16. Uh, the foreign emerging after the shellacking of the past year is down around 13. And if you look at a bucket of the cheap 25% countries, you have a valuation of around nine, which is the lowest that bucket's been since the bottom in 08, uh, touched around that area in 03. And then before that, back to the early 80s. Uh, we've said this on the show before, but if people are listening to this and you're hearing the numbers that Meb is throwing out there, so if he would throw out a 10 as far as the Schiller PE, 
in general terms, the easiest way to figure out what the yield is that we're referencing, you just take one divided by the number that we're saying. So if it's a 10, then that would be about a 10% return. So you take one divided by 10, it gives you a 10% return. If it's a 15, you'd go one divided by 15, you get a seven and a half percent return. So just as a rule of thumb, just so you guys can equate these numbers with actual yields as he's throwing out the different markets. Meb, I've heard you talk about this in some of your other interviews, and I think it's really important for you to highlight this for our audience. But can you talk about the bias that domestic investors have for equities in their own country? So I've been giving a variation of this speech over the past year, a couple of years. And if the audience is small enough, I'll pass around a piece of paper and ask one question. I'll say, what percentage of your stock allocation? So we're excluding real estate, bonds, commodities, currencies, everything else, just your stocks. How much do you have in the US? And almost every time I gave this speech in Phoenix and Tucson last week, and I said, I guarantee you the number is going to be very close to 70. And sure enough, in both towns, the number was 69%. And what that's called is home country bias, where if you look at the world market cap portfolio, so this is simply if you bought every stock in the world measured by its size, you would end up with roughly half in the US. And the US is the biggest market. So that should be your starting point. If you're an agnostic investor, John Bogle, Vanguard indexer, you would say, my starting point is half in the US. But in the US, obviously, investors put way more, around 70% in the US because it's comfortable, it's what's familiar. But this isn't just a US bias. It happens in Italy, it happens in the UK, it happens in Australia. It's even more odious in those countries because their market caps are even smaller, 10, 5, 3%. But so that should be the starting point. And then if you move forward from that, if you're a value investor, you say, look, the biggest problem with market cap weighting is that you overweight high value companies and countries. And so a good example is that you know in the 80s, Japan hit the highest cape ratio we've ever seen, almost a value of 100, biggest bubble in stocks we've ever seen, double our internet bubble in the 90s. And at the time, Japan was half a world market cap. So you had a massive drag on performance. And all the research shows that market cap weighting, while it is the market, it simply has no connection to value whatsoever. And so you often put too much in the big markets. And studies show that by investing in the largest company in the S&P 500, for example, underperforms the S&P by about three percentage points a year. That's true also in every sector. So if you just exclude or break that market cap link, you could sort stocks based on any other measure, letters of the alphabet, value, um, where the CEO went to college, and all of those are going to outperform market cap weighting. So as applied to the global landscape, certainly a lot of the countries are much cheaper than, than the US. Awesome. I love that. Fantastic. Let's keep the show going. We actually prepared nine questions, and uh, I don't know if we'll get to all of them. We, we did the first one, though. But uh, map the second one. So on the podcast, our investment philosophy is deeply rooted in value investing. That being said, given the current market conditions with high valuations, uh, we have discussed if our listeners should look more at hedge fund managers like Drunken Miller and Soros rather than Warren Buffett. So who do you expect to perform best the next, say, three to five years? Well, if I knew, I would certainly give them all my money. Um, <laughs> so let me know if you guys find out. But you know, it's 
challenging for investors. Most investors, if you talk to them, they have a investment methodology. So you'll talk to people and they say, I'm a value guy, or I'm a trend guy, or I'm a dividend guy, or I'm a Bitcoin guy, you know, who knows. Um, but one of the challenges is to take a step back and say, let the data speak for itself. And what works, what has historically worked in investing. And there's a lot of approaches that work in investing. Value works, trend following works, momentum works. And the biggest challenge, why Warren Buffett has been so successful is not his system, because his system's not that complicated. He invests in cheap stocks, high quality. Um, but what's beneficial is he sticks through his system. And so an example we gave on the blog recently is we said, if you just went and tracked what Buffett was doing through his, his public stock picks, updated it once a quarter. When those picks were public, he's outperformed S&P by something like 5 or 6% a year since 2000. This would have been one of the top performing mutual funds in the United States, would have performed 98% of all stock mutual funds. However, he's underperformed the broad market in, I think, seven of the last nine years, that strategy. So most investors, if that was a mutual fund or your money manager, would have fired him after year three or four or five. So you see these long cycles where certain types of strategies outperform. So this is a long-winded answer to your question, but where we are in the U.S. right now, um, you know, last year, year seven bull market, stock valuations are getting expensive and the best quadrant to be in when you're investing in the U.S. is cheap market that's going up. And so when I say a trend, you could use, say, 200-day moving average or 10-month moving average, but just an exact quant measure of is it going up or down. And the best quadrant is uh, cheap and going up. And where we've been the past few years is expensive but going up. And that's not a bad place to be. The problem is when that trend flips, which you've seen fourth quarter last year, end of last year, where all of a sudden you go from cheap and going up, cheap and going down. Uh, sorry, expensive and going up to expensive and going down. And expensive and going down is by far the worst place to be. It only happens about 10% of the time, but you really want to move aside. So a lot of the strategy, I mean, it's only, look, we're only three weeks into the year, but it's been a pretty dramatic start where U.S. stocks are expensive and going down. And what's working, you point out a lot of the Quant investors, the managed futures type of funds are up, you know, around six, seven percent. And we've said for a long time, as far as hedging um, U.S. stocks, you know, nothing is perfect. The best way to actually hedge is not to take risk in the first place. But U.S. government bonds and then managed futures historically have been two of the best. So we love quant and macro guys but we love them always. <laughs> so throughout, throughout every, every market cycle, we think they have a great, great place um, as a uh, complement to value strategies. All right. Fantastic answer. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. 
It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. So one of the ideas that you're really famous for, Meb, is providing a framework for imitating the best professional investors in the world. And you kind of hit on that on the last answer a little bit. You've written this book called The Ivy Portfolio. And for anybody else out there, we have... We've gotten a lot of questions on our form. A lot of people, and we get these questions just straight from email, people saying, well, why don't I just imitate the pics of Warren Buffett? Can I do that? And the answer is, Meb has written a book about this, and it's called The Ivy Portfolio. And what I'm really wanting Meb to do is just kind of provide the basic framework for this book and just kind of tell our audience a little bit about this idea of mimicking and imitating the best investors in the world just by looking at their 10Q or it, it just kind of expound upon that idea. Well, the great news, what a great lead in because I just published my fifth book last week on this topic. It's 200 and probably 60 pages deep on this called Invest with the House. But what where this theory goes back to is back in college, I was a biotech engineering student and was taking a security analysis class taught by a famous hedge fund manager, manages probably 10 billion now. And it was a security analysis class. And each week there would be a different hedge fund manager or guest speaker. And so you would listen to these guys give talks. So like Lee Ainsley of Maverick or a lot of these really famous guys. And you would sit there and listen and say, my God, they know so much more about these stocks than I ever will. They have far more resources, 20 analysts. They pay people to go spy on oil fields. They have people sitting in the parking lot of Walmart counting, shopping car, you know, all of these resources. I said, why wouldn't I just allocate to what they're doing? 
And many people don't know this, but you know, investors with over a hundred million under management have to publish their holdings once a quarter, and it's with a forty-five day delay. So the, the holdings as of the end of the year would come out February fifteenth. There's some caveats to these type of filings, such as you know, it's only the long picks show up, the shorts don't show up, the futures and derivatives don't show up, and so you want to be able to track the investors who have a long time horizon, who are stock pickers. You don't want to track the high frequency guys, the guys who are doing arbitrage, the guys who are doing macro. None of that works. But Buffett's a great example. So I said, being a quant, I can never get comfortable with the possibility, say, does this strategy work or not? I have no idea because I can't test it. And so after a few years, I said, all right, I, I corralled a few interns and we went and did this by hand and went and got downloaded all of the files online. This is all free. You can look it up on a number of websites that track these holdings like Whale Wisdom. And I said, I pulled together all these filings, found a non-biased stock database and said, let's test these and historically how it worked. And so Buffett being the example we just mentioned, where we said, you know, what would it look like to track Buffett? And it turns out it works actually great. And in fact, it works great for many of these managers. And in some cases, the performance is as good or better than the managers because you're not paying the high fees. So you're not paying them the 2% management fee, the 20% performance fee. And so what we illustrate in this new book and, and way back in the Ivy portfolio is you can cobble together a list of you know five or 10 of your favorite managers and use it in a couple of ways. One, as a stock screen for you know a, a, an idea form of new investments you may be interested in potential stocks to buy, so screen it down. Or you can simply outsource your entire portfolio to some of your favorite managers and say, let, let them do the work. You know, These are the Michael Jordans of finance. And so instead of allocating to what my broker says or my next door neighbor, I'm going to let Seth Klarman pick my portfolio. And uh, yeah, I think it's a great way to invest. And, and we've been doing it for a long time. That is awesome. So, Meb, just a quick follow-up question to this idea of tracking these, you know, all stars that are investing with just awesome returns. One of the things that we talk about on our show a lot, and my concern with sometimes telling people different picks, is that they will lack the conviction to kind of stay with it if it starts moving against them, especially in the early part of taking that position. So, is that something that you talk about in this new book that you said is just coming out, investing with the house? And if it's not, I'm just real curious to hear your thoughts on this idea of conviction whenever you're basically following somebody else's move and you might not fully understand why they're taking that position. Well, look, investors are always their own worst enemy. And it's not just retail, it's institutions as well. Well, where the biases we have, they'll go out and chase performance. And, you know, this happens over and over again. And all of the academic research shows that you know, it costs investors anywhere from one to 4% a year by buying what's done well and selling what's done poorly. So I, I'm eternally bearish on investors as a group um, <laughs> to, to, ever get, to ever get it right, regardless. So, I mean, fine, hold investing, whether it's active, regardless of the strategy, you know, commodities and emerging markets are a great example right now. No one wants those cheap countries we were talking about earlier, the you know, no one's going to listen to this podcast and say, you know what, I'm going to go buy Brazil and Russia and Eastern Europe and, you know, Spain and Italy and all these, you know, and throw in a little, sprinkle in a little Peru and Egypt just to, to make it interesting <laughs> because it's hard to do. And so the, the same 
problems that face. And it's, look, I have all the biases. I'm overconfident. I'll take too much risk if you give it to me. But that's part of the reason I became a quan is to make these rules and say, look, I know given these parameters, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. And so the same challenges apply, whether you're picking stocks or buy and hold investor, is that, you know, can you put in rules in place? And a great example was the Buffett example earlier. You know, could you still track this manager who's underperformed seven of nine years, despite that fact, he's outperformed the S&P by five or 6% a year in one of the best funds in the country? You know, can you follow Seth Klarman after he had a probably a down 30, 20% year last year? And it's hard. So I don't know if there's any easy answers to that question, but the biggest is to write down an investment plan. You know, some people call it a policy portfolio that accounts for any possible scenario and understand enough market history to say, look, I understand that, for example, my buy and hold portfolio will go down by. 35% at some point, or my stock portfolio will decline in half. I mean, this has happened to Buffett multiple times in his career. And if you can really behave properly when things go poorly, my favorite quote is investing is the only business when things go on sale, people run out of the store. And, you know, so I think that applies very broadly to any strategy, not just, just stock picking. Yeah. Great answer. Map, uh, recently you written a blog post about the performance of various indexes, and we touched upon this prior here in the uh, interview. But what did you learn from studying international markets in 2015? And do you think there are any regions that investors should pay special attention to in 2016? Well, we've been saying for a long time that foreign markets are cheap, but that doesn't mean they can't get cheaper. We expect the cheapest bucket, and we have ETFs that track this, you know, to have double digit returns in the, in the foreign stock markets, whereas in the US, we expect low single digit returns. But historically, and so we did a book called Global Asset Allocation that looked at 15 of the most famous guru portfolios. So as recommended by um, David Swinson or Rob Arnott or Mohammed Al Aryan uh, and all these famous investors that manage in the trillions, they've all recommended publicly at some point an asset allocation portfolio. So they say, you should put this much in gold, this much in stocks, this much in foreign bonds, real estate, commodities, whatever. And what you find is that it's actually really surprising, but they almost always recommend some in global stocks, some in fixed income, and some real assets, such as REITs, commodities, and TIPS. There's vastly different allocations, however. But the stunning takeaway from that book was that you exclude the permanent portfolio, which is a little different because it has a high allocation to cash, all of the asset allocation portfolios in that book were within one percentage point return of each other over 40 years. So they all grouped in this little range of, let's call it 5% real return, so nominal around 10, historically since 1972. Now they had vastly different returns in any given year. So here's the challenging part is that you went back to 1972 and said, you know what, crystal ball, I'm going to be able to predict the best asset allocation portfolio. And that turns out it would have been the L. Arian portfolio, which is an endowment style. So it's heavy in growth and heavy in equities. And that's not surprising because that's done well over the past 40 years. And said, I'm going to layer on the average cost of a mutual fund today, which is 1.25%. That would have taken the portfolio of the best asset allocation in our entire book and made it almost as bad as the worst. 
And so what investors spend so much time thinking on, and this is the strategic asset allocation crowd, is, you know, are stocks expensive? Should I be in bonds with the Fed raising rates? You know, what about commodities? And it turns out the actual allocation is not that important. What is important is the boring stuff, the basic blocking and tackling of fees, commissions, and taxes. And then on top of that, if you layer on the average fee of financial advisor, which is 1% in the US, so you're up to 2.25% now, you take the best performing crystal ball allocation and turn it to far worse than the worst. And that's a pretty profound takeaway from our studies is that a lot of the boring stuff really has a massive impact. And then we did one more study where we said, you know what, we're going to update the allocation once a decade with the best performing allocation of the past decade. So what worked in the 70s, we'll then use that allocation for the 80s and then vice versa for the 90s. That would have cost you an additional one and a half percent a year by chasing performance. And thus lies the challenge and the fun of our business is that, you know, people in the 70s, you know, gold was incredible in the 70s and allocations, most allocations did awful in the 70s. But what worked then, and probably all the managers that would have been fired, would have done much better in the 80s. You know? And so the challenge right now, for example, the way we see the world is that what is, what is dear often is the worst performing asset class going forward and vice versa. So commodities, emerging markets, universally hated right now. You go back to 07, everyone was talking about the BRICS. Everyone wanted commodities, these big institutions. Fast forward, you know, eight years and it's the opposite. So, I mean, again, going back to the idea of coming up with a strategic portfolio that is, does not have a home country bias, um, I say, A, it doesn't really matter. But B, one of my favorite portfolios that's all really hard to beat um, is very simple. I think we named it on the blog, the, uh, the, the Trinity portfolio, because you put a third in global stocks third in global bonds, and a third in trend-following type of strategies. So you could call it managed futures, you could call it any sort of global trend. And that's a really nice portfolio because it performs well in most market environments. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but we think there's a lot of opportunity in in foreign assets um, because the U.S. has had a pretty, pretty strong run this past seven years. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise dot com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, 
a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So Meb, when we look at the international value investing strategy, we see that Japan right now is offering some really good valuations. Their PE ratio is is very low relative to a lot of other locations. But with that said, I don't trust the Japanese currency at, at this point. And I feel like we're upon some interesting times in this coming year, especially as their QQE seems like they're not going to be uh, really kind of continuing that anymore. I see that making their currency extremely strong and very difficult for their equities. So Specifically with Japan, how do you see this playing out with their valuations being so low and they've got all these other currency issues happening? I'm just real curious to hear your opinion on this. Currencies are tough. There's a good quote called, currencies aren't difficult, they're just confusing. And as Americans, you know, we benefit from having the reserve currency and a lot of Americans don't really think a lot about currencies. You know, they think of them in terms of, hey, Argentine peso and Brazilian real went down big last year. That means vacation to South America is cheaper. Or, you know, currency is expensive in Europe and it's going to be more expensive to go skiing. And that's it, really. They don't really think in terms of investing. But here's the way we think about currencies. So this is a broader question, then we'll get to Japan. Real currency returns over time, meaning net of inflation, are fairly stable. 
the key word being over time. You know, in any given year, currencies can go up, down 20, 30%, as we've seen in the past few years, particularly last year, US dollar being very strong against a number of currencies. But over time, they're fairly stable because they adjust for inflation. So when thinking about hedging or not hedging equity markets, I'm actually agnostic, but feel that you have to pick one or the other and stick with it. Either you hedge all your equity exposure or you don't, but you stick with it because over time, it'll be a wash. With foreign government bonds and developed markets, a little different because that's a low volatility asset class and currencies add volatility to an asset class that doesn't historically have them. So in that case, we think hedging makes a lot of sense. Furthermore, if you then say, what about treating currencies themselves as an entire asset class? It turns out you can apply very simple factors that you apply, say, in stock investing that work great in currencies too. So such factors as value, as trend and momentum, as carry is probably the most famous one. And then you can create essentially trading system on currencies as an asset class that correlates to very little. We've had a currency fund filed for a very long time, but have never launched it because didn't think people were that interested. I think that's changing. I think people have been more and more interested in currencies the past few years. Now getting on to Japan. You know, it's interesting when you look back at the history of valuation of many of these markets, because if you look at the left side of the chart of cheap countries, and I mean, it almost gives you nausea to think about because it's, it's the worst geopolitical environment, the worst economies. Brazil is probably in the worst recession, borderline depression they've ever been in. And you say, why, my God, why would anyone want to invest in those? And that's part of the reason it works. And a lot of those country stock markets are simply really cheap because they've declined a lot already. So many of those markets, there's something like 10 or 15 markets around the world now that are down over 50%. A lot of those markets are cheap PE because the P has gone down so much. They've gone down 40, 60, 80%, Greece's case, 95%. And But the names changed. If you go back to the late 90s, a lot of the Asian countries were the cheap bucket. If you go back to the before that, it was the Scandinavian countries were in their banking crisis. In the early 80s, the US was one of the cheapest markets in the world. So usually what happens is when markets are cheap, there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't or would never invest there. Russia, great example. A year or two ago, when they were doing very poorly, I mean, they were shooting down commercial planes. They were invading countries, uh, you know, oil going down, all these reasons not to invest in Russia. But as the story slowly fades away, you know, and things go from totally miserable to only slightly less miserable, that's when you can have some of the big returns. And Japan is one of my favorite examples of valuation because people also talk about, should you use relative or absolute valuation? Meaning, should I just say the average over time for all countries is around 16, 17 and use that? Or should you compare them to their own value value history? And I always say the former because bubbles and depressions have such lingering influence. You know, Japan, had you said, I'm going to invest when it's cheap relative to its own history, you would have bought the entire way down in the 90s and 2000s. And so every year you say, well, it's cheap relative to this historical cape of 50, but that's just because it was a massive bubble. So Japan finally got interesting a few years ago, but no one cared anymore. And then they had one of the biggest returns ever uh, for their stock market. But of course, the currency got hammered as well. I think it's interesting. It's not, it's not hitting our filters as one of the cheapest in the world. 
though a lot of the countries are changing place very quickly uh, with the market volatility and uh, China being another example that's getting close to the cheap bucket, but not quite there yet. So we think it's interesting, but not quite hitting the super cheap yet for us. Hmm, interesting. So Matt, for the audience out there and perhaps also for Preston and I, could you uh, give us some stock tickers if we want to look at, say, ETFs investing in these really cheap countries and First of all, you know, we have a fund that invests in the top quartile of cheapest countries. It's called Global Value, GVAL, that does it for you. An important point that I forgot to neglect to mention is that if you're doing a deep value strategy, you only want to rebalance that once a year at the most. You could rebalance it every two years, but you need to give these countries and stocks time to work. If you rebalance it quarterly or monthly, you completely destroy the returns. So you need to give it some breathing room. So we run a fund based on it. It's very concentrated. It's my personal largest holding. Uh, but you could also do a lot of things. There's single country funds that trade for almost every foreign developed and emerging country out there, ETFs by a lot of the big name ETF providers. And simply a value approach to global investing would probably work great, just as great anyway. So there's a number of ways to skin the cat, but at the very least, we tell people to, to put at least half into, uh, into foreign stocks. All right, Meb. So the question I've got in a lot of our audience is really wanting to hear your opinion on this. This is why I'm going to ask it. And they're curious about the U.S. equity market in the coming year. And they're also curious about your opinion on what the Fed might do from this point forward. So we've got the Fed that raised their quarter of a percent federal funds rate there in the middle of December. I'm of the opinion that they're not going to raise rates anymore into 2016 at all. I'm curious to hear your opinion on that, or if you think that they might do it once or twice more. And I'm curious to hear your opinion on what you think is going to happen with the U.S. equity market specifically. Okay, two-part question. It's easy. The first part on the Fed, I have no idea. So we can go ahead and like Charlie Munger style. I'll just say <laughs> I've, got no, I, I've got nothing on that. And then the second part, U.S. equities. You know, if you go Google on our blog, I had done an article last summer called 11 Bearish Charts, One Bullish One. And it detailed 11 different factors surrounding the U.S. market, such as mergers and acquisitions nearing an all-time high, the percent of unprofitable IPO companies nearing an all-time high, valuations so such as Schiller. And there's another example um, the median price to earnings of the stocks in the S&P 500 is at the highest it's ever been since the 1960s. The percent allocation of investors to equities is one of the highest it's ever been, which historically uh, says low single digit returns. So there's all of these indicators that say you should be bearish or have very low expectations for U.S. stocks. However, I said, there's one bullish and it's the actual, it's like the queen of spades Trump card that matters more than all of these combined. And that was the trend. And so I said, at some point when the trend turns negative by 200 day, 10 month moving average, whatever it may be, then there will literally be no reason to invest in US stocks. And so that happened this fourth quarter where it flipped very quickly, it went bearish, then kind of ran back up. And then now you, and in, in many, this is the S&P 500, it's already turned bearish in all the small cap, the mid cap. It's been bearish for a long time on uh, foreign stocks and commodities. So going into the beginning of the year, we have an old white paper called A Quantitative Approach to Tactical Asset Allocation I wrote back in 2006 and a simple trend following approach. But any of the trend following approaches would say 
you're going to be mostly or 100% in cash. And so I think the going forward, you know, caution is, is absolutely warranted in U.S. markets. You know, we're much more positive on foreign, but if the U.S. is, is enters a, a bear, bear market, which many foreign markets are already in, it'll will very likely drag down foreign foreign as well. So we we urge caution in the U.S. Perfect. The last question, Mev. What investment book has had one of the biggest impact on your way of thinking? Good question. So I read a lot. I have a reading problem. So there's there's many <laughs> many books that I have ingest on a weekly basis. My favorite is called Triumph of the Optimists, and it is a one of the most important things we think for investors is to understand market history. So to understand what has happened, be able to look back and say, look, the U.S. stock market has declined by 80%. There are markets that have completely closed down, like Russia and China. Or you know, was the U.S. the unique market of the past 115 years? So Triumph of the Optimists is written by a few British professors. You may want to to rent it from the library because it's, I think, a hundred dollar book. But this beautiful coffee table book that looks at, I think, twenty markets, stocks, bonds, bills, back to nineteen hundred. And there's a few wonderful takeaways. One of which is that what I like to call the five two one rule, and this is roughly what stocks, bonds, and bills have returned for the past hundred and fifteen years in global markets on average, real returns, so net of inflation. Global stocks around five percent. The U.S. I think was six and a half, one of the top markets in the world. Maybe only one or two better. I think South Africa was the best, but there were countries like Austria that basically returned nothing over the entire period. And then bonds returned about a percent and a half. Though I'm rounding up to two because it's easier to remember. And then bills basically kept even with an inflation around half a percent. But I round up to one again to, to to make it easy. So five two one. But it gives a lot of wonderful examples. And on top of that, you can go Google uh, Credit Suisse puts out a yearly update called the Global Investment Returns Yearbook. And they've put out about 10 of these and they're free. And so you may end up on my blog because I post downloads of these every year. It's one of my favorite. It's like uh, Christmas Eve waiting out for their publication because they tackle different concepts each year. They've tackled tape ratios. They've tackled you know what... If you sorted global markets on trailing GDP and, and FX returns, what does best? And they talk about dividends and momentum and trend. A wonderful education for free on all those updates. So that that's probably my favorite book uh, to take a look at and tackles currencies as well. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Like This information you're sharing with our audience is just, just total abundance. We can't thank you enough. This was just fantastic. And I know you're going to have a lot of people from our audience coming over to your sites and wanting to read more about you after hearing this interview. So if you could uh, give them a handoff to your different sites and some of the things that you have out there so they can learn more about you and maybe some of your books, please share that with our audience right now if you could. Sure. You guys can always find me at mebfaber.com is my blog. There's over 1,500 articles. And if you've made it all the way through this podcast and go to freebook.mebfaber.com. I'll even send you a copy of a free book. You got to promise to read it though. And uh, I you know, post a lot of studies on Twitter as well, at Faber. And there's a handful of white papers on the SSRN network. And of course, any of the five books. So plenty, plenty of reading to, to keep you busy. All right. So Meb, thank you so much for coming on the show. We just really appreciate your time. Thank you. Pleasure.
All right. So that's all we got for you guys this week. And if you guys go over to Meb's website, I guarantee you, you're going to really learn a lot. All the stuff that he was talking about, we're going to have that in our show notes. So if you guys need or you're not hearing it on the show or you don't have the opportunity to write it down because you're driving in your car, just go to our show notes after you're done on theinvestorspodcast.com and you guys can uh, pull up all that information and all the links. Um, Also, please sign up on our email list. We try to read a book every other episode and we send out a free executive summary of all the books that we read. We don't do any spam or marketing. So go ahead and sign up on that and you can get those. And if you have a question, you want to get it played on our show. We haven't played a question in a little bit, but we're getting ready to do our next episode and we're going to play a bunch of questions from our audience. You can get those questions played if you go to asktheinvestors.com and you record your questions there. And for anybody that gets their question played on our show, we'll send you a free signed autographed copy of our book, The Warren Buffett Accounting Book. So that's all we have for you guys and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.